In northeastern Pennsylvania, there's a town called Centralia. Centralia was once a thriving coal mining community, home to thousands of people. But in May of 1962, a fire was started in a garbage dump near an open coal seam. The fire was thought to be extinguished, but actually continued underground, often releasing gas and flame to the surface above, until the town of thousands eventually dwindled to less than a dozen. The fire still rages today and shows no sign of stopping. The following podcast is in no way related to Centralia, Pennsylvania. And now... Direct from New York City, an island off the coast of America, it's the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. Hi, welcome to the Centralia Podcast. This is Pat McCartney with Kevin Scott. Hi, Pat. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Use my podcast voice. Kevin, you're, you're like the boss. You're the boss of Centralia. Uh, I'm bossy. I don't know if I'm the boss. You're the captain of the ship. If anybody asks me, um, can I play with Centralia? Can I uh, get Kevin Scott's autograph? Mm-hmm. Can I get a picture of Kevin Scott? I always defer to you. Which is would make sense in the case of Centralia. I just say you got to ask the captain, Captain Kevin. Um, I mean, in some ways, yeah. I I don't know if I think of myself as the captain. I we sort of rotate through being the person who's like encouraging everyone else to get going, but I tend to have that role more often. Maybe because my goals right. associated with the group are are different. Than everyone else's. It's because you have a also a tremendous amount of, you know, technical and film experience. So as far as putting together all the little things like this, we count on you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I've been in charge of the advertising since day one. Um, I, not to say that I'm good at it, but certainly the creative side of all that stuff, and then all the pre-show videos, pre-show music post-show music, all the announcements. You know, we always have a video opening to the show. I do all that yeah. stuff, like soup to nuts. Yeah. And so by default, I feel like that I gain a higher percentage of say in other creative decisions. Sure. Does that make sense? Because like if I'm designing the thing, that I, then this is what this show's about. But that's not always the case. Like we did uh, Myth America show back in the day. Right. And that was Matt. Matt was like, I got an idea for a show. And, you know, Jay's had some concepts for shows. We sort of, whoever is inspired, we sort of take their yeah. lead. I tend to put anything I'm inspired to do in the Centralia bucket, if that makes sense. Like when I have an idea, I'm like, I'm going to pitch this to Centralia first versus like doing side projects first. Yeah. Totally. So, it, so just the number of things that I throw at Centralia, I think, is a higher percentage than the other guys do. Um, but it's still like everyone has to get on board with every idea. So I may pitch 10 ideas. Yeah, we are, right? Yeah, I may pitch 10 ideas, and then one gets picked up, or people are like, okay, let's do that. 
That's one of the things I love about this group. We are a total democracy. Yeah. Hey, you grew up near Matt in Pennsylvania. Yes. I mean, from a global perspective, right next door. And now you live right next door to him in Inwood, New York. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You guys are meant to be. It's like a meet cute. When did, did you ever meet out there in, in, in Pennsylvania? Well, we worked together in 1988. We both were hired at a theme park called Sesame Place. Um, ah. And we were doing kind of like sketch for kids. And we did a lot of improv and rehearsals. And But Matt and I were a stand-up duo first. Um, right. Yeah, Matt was talking about his stand-up briefly. The uh, the same clubs as as Paul F. Tompkins and and uh, Rick Roman and Adam McKay. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the yeah. other duo was Gus, which was Rick Roman and Paul F. Tompkins, and we hung out with them a bunch of times. And what and, kind of stuff would you and Matt do? Well, we would switch off that. It was always a plant in the audience gag. Like Matt would be doing stand up, and I'd be some crazy guy in the audience. I'd be his hairdresser, right? Love or those. or he would be my hairdresser. Uh, we'd mm-hmm. sort of s- switch off, or some kind of heckler. Um, mm-hmm. That was usually it. That was usually the gag. And and looking always always fun. Yeah, I I don't know if we were groundbreaking or original, but we had fun. But uh, but I realized after doing it with Matt that it's like I just want to do sketch. Like, stand-up was okay, mm. but I much preferred being with another person. I preferred playing scenes, you know, coming from, like, a, a high school where I did a lot of acting, where I was like... Right, yeah, you're a theater kid. I was a theater which kid. Is, which is, which, you know, I don't think a lot of people know that about you. Um, and today's a hard day, considering the announcement Broadway had... Uh, and it's not opening until June. Yeah. I know I say that with a very heavy heart. I know you're a big Broadway fanatic. You try and see every show. When you were a kid, do you remember the first experience you had with a with a play? Seeing a play or being in one? Because I was in them before I ever saw them, for sure. In? What was the... What, what were you in? Well, the first one, I think, was... You know, in elementary school, we did a production of the Nutcracker, and I had I had two lines in it, but I could do this funny voice where my voice could go really high, like a cartoon character, and right. I did that in the audition, and everyone was like that's hilarious, and so I play, and I was very short until high school, probably till tenth grade. I was mm-hmm. a very short person, and so I played this little mouse, and everyone thought it was so funny, and it killed. Mm. That's the first time that like. <laughs> I got that feeling of killing because I was doing this crazy voice and I was really tiny. You're still playing that character. I am. I am. I remember my line uh, uh, was I forgot my blanket was the second line. Like everyone exits and I have to run back on and grab my blanket and say, I forgot my blanket. And it just killed. Uh, your animal your animal characters, I got to say, Kevin, they're mm-hmm. very cute. Like oh, in a genuine, you. genuine, they're funny, <laughs> but they're also adorbs. They're adorbs. I get some mileage from That's the sort adorbs. of the thing about you. You're funny and you're you're very comfortable on stage. I love playing scenes with you because I immediately feel relaxed. Oh, good, good. I Me feel too. Like there's a, a strong sort of 
understanding that we're we're in it together, and no matter where we go, we're gonna have fun. Yeah, I love that about about playing scenes with you. Right back at you. So Nutcracker. So that was that feeling where you're like, oh, I can make people laugh. I've yeah. got this. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I was a class clown and make jokes with my friends, but to make strangers laugh was a very different yeah. thing. But what about your family? My, you know, I grew up in an Irish Catholic family. Um, right. And while there was fist fights and alcoholism and other sorts of abuse, there was also a lot of jokes. I, I remember when it would be like my dad and one of my uncles and a bunch of cousins, and we'd all be driving somewhere together. And it was like the competition was on to see who can get the biggest laugh that day. Because we would talk about those one-liners. We were going to, um, I believe, an air show or a military surplus sale, something like that. And we're driving to military bases. And we pull up to this military base to get in, and we're at the checkpoint and my uncle had a carpet cleaning business. So we were all in his carpet cleaning van. And my eldest brother says, just tell him we're here to clean the general's carpets. And that was a line we repeated as a family for decades. Decades. We just thought that was the funniest thing ever. So I always felt this competition to like be the funniest one at any family gathering. How many in your family? My immediate, there was four. There was four kids and two parents. There was six of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brothers, sisters? I have two older brothers and a younger sister. Mm-hmm. None of them have gone into show business. Mm-hmm. Not that I've gone into show business because you know the business part is still elusive, but mm-hmm. I've gone into show. And do you remember what you used to watch that made you laugh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I still think about this stuff all the time. Probably The Muppet Show was first. The Carol Burnett Show, uh, Flip Wilson. We'd watch, you know, the sitcoms, uh, Happy Days, The Vernon Shirley, The Jeffersons, Good Times. Uh, I loved Sanford and Son. Just thought that show was so funny. Um, And I'm trying to think, what else? And, you know, I watched those old sitcoms from the 60s like F Troop and Get Smart I definitely love those the early Woody Allen movies whenever those were on like Channel 11 or Channel 5 Mm -hmm. I'd watch Take the Money and Run Bananas Sleeper Mm -hmm. like I loved those silly comedies you know but then you know my love of comedy really caught fire with Saturday Night Live I guess Mm. Saturday Night Live I remember seeing the George Carlin Saturday Night Live. Now, I don't know if it was the first time it was on or if it was a rerun, um, but I do remember seeing it from like 1975 on. Um, and, and John Belushi on air changed his name to Kevin Scott for a series of episodes in 78, and that was life-changing to see my name. Wow. John Belushi using my name. It was in the opening credits and everything. Wow. And I was like, what is going on? Um <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. You were being called. I was being called for sure. But I, you know, I loved SNL, but uh, SCTV spoke to me more like sure. Andrea Martin, Eugene Levy. Yeah. All of them, you know, Catherine O'Hara. Just these people were geniuses. And they were so bizarre. 
And it, for some reason, it's just I connected more with SCTV than I did SNL, but I loved SNL as well. Um, still do. Yeah, as SCTV, you know what's interesting about that cast as opposed to the early SNL cast? They, you know, the story they'd all met in a production of Godspell. So they were sort of theater kids too. Mm-hmm. So their references and their, and their, and their characters were, I, th- I would say, maybe a little deeper mm-hmm. than the ones, uh, something about it. They also had more time. They, they, they had more time. You know, there wasn't a live audience. Mm. So they would do these crazy parodies where they would mash up two or three movies together. And I thought that was so fun, especially, you know, like the, the reward for knowing what they were referencing, you know, which you didn't have to. But if it's like, oh, I get that, you know, I, I understand who they're making fun of right? or, you know, or what movie they're making fun of. That was rewarding. It made me feel smart. Whereas SNL is certainly in the early days was more like rock and roll in your face. Let's see Belushi act insane, which was valuable as well. Don't get me wrong. I like them both. Just SCTV yeah. hit me, you know, on a deeper level, I guess. What was more rewarding for you, making your mom or your dad laugh? Oh, man. Uh, probably my mom, I think. I think so. I mean, they both were, were laughers. And my dad was a very silly guy, always wearing strange clothes. We went to, like, a, one of those drive through safari theme parks when we were young. And he, he dressed as, like... A, you know, in a full safari outfit with a pith helmet, you know, like an like an explorer. I mean, he dressed like mm-hmm. a costumed character would at the park. Um, he was always doing stuff like that, and um, but I, I don't think I was. I worked very hard to make him laugh, as opposed to my mother, who I think I I worked harder to make laugh. You know, it's that same thing where like I'm clearly trying to cheer her up. You know, I'm I'm trying mm-hmm. to solve some of her psychic wounds. Or problems, you know, in whatever way a kid understands the world, you know, like my mom doesn't seem to be having much joy. I'm going to bring that joy and I'm going to be silly, which she liked. She liked when I did impressions. When I was very little, uh, Uh I remember doing impressions of Rich Little's impressions or other Mm -hmm. comedians I would see. You know, we watched all the HBO Young Comedian specials and then I would do their act as I remembered it. Right. I love a good impression. What were your go-tos back Uh, then? Well... Anything Rich Little did for sure, like stuff of the time, Richard Nixon, um, mm. you know, um, <laughs> what's his name? Columbo. Um, Peter Falk. Peter Falk as Columbo, basically. Yeah. Um, right. I'm sure I was doing Star Wars bits and, you know, whatever was in the pop culture of the time. But a lot of it was before, you know, I, I remember doing Jack Nicholson and not knowing who Jack Nicholson was. Right. Yeah, it, we all did Jack Nicholson. Right, yeah. but it's like that's what other, you know, in, in other impersonators were doing on TV. And I was like, well, I'll just learn the impression because they've already done the work of like, you know, creating the comic voice right, of yeah. the impression. So I would just imitate that. And my parents thought it was hilarious. Of course, now as an adult, I realize it was hilarious because their kid was doing it. You know, a kid and their kid. You know, I don't think I was particularly... Funny, but I do remember when I was in high school doing, you know, like they have these, uh, you know, the color wars, and there was like a sketch comedy component of the color wars. And I remember taking Billy Crystal's uh, Fernando character 
and mm-hmm. putting that in the fantasy island context. And it was like a conscious effort. It was, uh, it was like, well, anybody, and I'm sure every high school had someone doing, you look marvelous. Fernando. You know. Fernando was a character. We should tell the the listeners who Fernando was. Yeah, it was it was uh, a, an impersonation of Fernando Lamas, but it was an original character sort of based on him, sort of like a Latin romantic figure who was like, you look marvelous. It's better to look good than to feel good. And he had this <laughs> series of sketches, which actually started in his stand-up act, but then migrated to Saturday Night Live called Fernando's Hideaway, which was like a fake right. talk show where he'd have guests, but really just talk about himself and how marvelous he was. But I remember taking that and putting it into the Fantasy Island uh, world, which was happening at that time. And it was like the first time I was like, what would you know SCTV do with this? I'm not just going to do... Fernando's hideaway mm. and interview the principal. I'm going to try and make a story out of this. So sort of imitating right. other people's material was my stepping stone into like, you know, figuring out how to do it myself. Sure. Well, that's what great artists do, right? Great artists right. steal. Yeah. Amateurs imitate professional steal. Oh, we all did it. Every, every, and then every generation gets burnt out on a series of impressions. I remember by the time I started doing impressions, everybody was like, everybody can do that impression. Right. You know, it's like Christopher Walken. Now, oh, yeah. Probably. Yeah. I still think it's wonderful to see a great impression. Yeah. Uh, the one impression I've always wanted to be able to do is a John Malkovich impression. Ooh, I that saw would be a stand up do it once and I, I never forgot it. That'd be good. It's a tough one. Yeah. We all do McConaughey now. All right, all right, all That's right. That's McConaughey. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, Nobody doesn't do McConaughey. Hey, hey, hey. It's still fun. It's still yeah. fun to it's do still it. Fun. Comics can get very elitist about, you know, stuff in, inside baseball sort of stuff. We always forget, like, you know, we want to do that thing cheer our mom up cheer up the world especially now it's just so important yeah what we do yeah so we have that voice that voice that i struggle with too like well i didn't you know do this good enough or that good enough i know you have that voice i have that voice oh my god that voice doesn't shut up it never shuts up how do you deal with that voice you just let it let it be or I don't know if I've developed the strategy yet to shut the voice up or but I try to be zen about it and just say, all right, it's just a thought in my head. Let it go. Think about something else. Um and I tr- you know, I try to keep myself busy so it so the voice doesn't creep up too much and put the next thing out. Yeah. You know, work on the next thing. It's a great thing about improv is there's always a show next week. There's always some applause and some laughter. Um, you know. While I'm trying to do other stuff, while I'm trying to create things, but that you know that voice right. is always Nothing there. Is too... I you know just and it's random stuff. Just the other day, I was remembering that I was invited to participate in the first reading of *You're in Town*, which is a show that went to Broadway, won a bunch of Tony awards. Um, right. And 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 I turned it down, and it was just yesterday. I was like, wait a minute, why did I turn down *You're in Town*? You know, in retrospect, it's like. You say yes to that kind of thing. You know, of course, nobody knew it was going to go to Broadway. I'm sure at the time I was like, I don't have time for these rehearsals because I'm working on my own thing. You know, I, I had commitments, I'm sure. Um, but that's that voice basically saying, you made a mistake. 
you could have been in urine town, you know, who mm. knows? I might've been terrible in the first reading and they're like, thanks for coming. Bye. Mm. But that's what that voice does. That voice is like, you made a mistake. Something that was 25, 30 years ago, you know, yeah, I still, still I've tried to, that self-sabotage voice, just a voice that wants to, it's probably from early childhood. I'm sure. I'm that's sure. And I, and I know there's other people that have the opposite voice. That's, you're the greatest. You can do no wrong. You're so smart. I, well, those, those, those children were raised with wonderful self-esteem. Yeah. And usually alcoholism is not a part of the upbringing. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's a self esteem thing, although, uh, or they don't have any voice at all, and they're sociopaths. That's true. That's true. There are. That's I've heard... how I I go ahead and just classify them all as sociopaths. Yeah, I've heard that there's people that do not have an inner monologue. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. But hey, so you're in so you're in Philly with Matt. And you're doing the thing, and you're mm -hmm. like, I want to do sketch. Therefore, I am going to move to the land of sketch, which at that time was Chicago. So you yeah. go to Chicago. Well, I had we had seen. I think Matt was at the first Second City show I ever saw. At we went down to Virginia, the College of William and Mary, and we saw Carell was in the cast. I think uh, Rabano. Rosalski was definitely in the cast. And mm -hmm. we saw the touring company of the Second City, and it planted the seed that, like, these are actual people. Because we went up to them afterwards and talked to them. And I was like, right. people actually do this. You know, they're not in a box on television. I just saw them do it. And it was so funny that I was like, I, I, it took a while for, the, for it really to, to form in my head that it's something I was going to do. Um, but it was reading something wonderful right away by Jeffrey Sweet, The Compass by Janet Coleman. I did. I went to Pennsylvania State University. Um, what was your major? History. Ah, yeah, you're also incredibly smart. Uh, yeah, maybe. And passionate about history. Well, thank history. you. I do. I do love history. I do love it. All the stories are there. All the lessons. I'm always so impressed by your knowledge of history. I, it's so funny you say that because I feel like I have so many gaps and there's so many things I've forgotten that, you know, I, I see, yeah, it's again, it's that voice in my head. They're like, oh, I don't study enough. I haven't studied enough. I haven't read enough. You know, why have I forgotten the details? Like I could name all the World War I generals years ago, you know, and what they're, you know, the Maginot Line, the Riefenstahl plan, like all these things I could be like, this is what this meant and this is the significance. Now it's like I don't remember anything. It's because I don't you use it. Remember who your favorite teachers were when it came to comedy or acting? Um, well, the who had the, the biggest the, impact on you. The biggest impact, by far, still to this day, was my high school drama teacher. Who wow. there's there's a book written about him that based a TV series on his life. Um, he's like a legend. A legend. His name is Lou Volpe. What was the series? The series was called Rise. Uh, it only lasted one season. Mm. Uh, it failed because they they changed too much of the story. It, the guy who did Friday Night Lights did it, and he was trying to redo Friday Night Lights. I was actually in touch with his producers about the show when when they were making it, writing them letters saying, 
this is how you have to do this show. And they were like, thanks, but no thanks. We got it. We did Friday Night Lights. What do we need you for? And I was like, I work in a high school. I've been working in a high school for 10 years. I know it. I was a teaching artist for 20 years before that. Plus, I went to the high school that you're basing this on. Right, you lived it. You're going to get it wrong without me. Anyway, enough about my ragging on that show. And they did. They got it wrong. They totally got it wrong. And what was his name again? Lou Volpe. Louis P. Volpe. A brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, Probably could have been directing Broadway. Probably should have been directing Broadway, but he just wanted to direct high school theater. But you know, we were doing. And what did he give you? He give you? Did he give you that confidence? He empowered you. Well, I mean, you really should read the book. It's called Drama High. It explains the whole story. It's a, it's the story of my life. But he, you know, we were a steel town at the time of you know the Rust Belt was rusting, where the steel jobs were drying up. They sh- they shut the steel mill in the town where I grew up in in Pennsylvania on the edge of like rural Pennsylvania and suburbia. And, you know, he told us we could do theater, but it wasn't theater. Like in most places, theater is look at me theater. You know, look, we're doing Oklahoma. It was theater as art. It was theater as self-expression and self-discovery. He, Mm. in that way that Dell would say, you know, we're all poets and kings. Mm -hmm. It it was that kind of thing where like, you have something to say and we're going to say it. We did plays about AIDS in the 80s, before the mm-hmm. president even said the word AIDS, we had done a play about it right. in our hometown. Um, you know, that they were the first high school to do Rent, uh, Les Mis. Like, um, they would just do incredible productions, but it wasn't like because of money. It was because of, for lack of a better term, heart. You know? And these are not acting right. kids. You know, these are not kids who take a bunch of acting classes after school and right. go to summer camps. You know, these are kids that have to work in the summer to help their parents pay rent. You know, I grew up in a place right. where the electricity would get shut off at least once a year because it couldn't pay the bills. My family's house was up for sheriff sale more than once. Wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we had to, we got government cheese. We had to go to the food pantry, the, the local government food pantry, and get food in order to, to eat. And our high school theater teacher was like, we're doing Guys and Dolls. Now, we're going to do, we did Agnes of God, we did The Elephant Man, um, and we, we really did them, you know, because he didn't look at us as a bunch of uh, poor kids with, you know, effed up family systems, or maybe he did, and maybe he was like, this is how we're going to get through it. He was just like, we're going to do a great play, you know? And it was, it's probably more about the experience than about anything he ever said. He treated what we were doing as work, you know? We didn't have a drama club, you know? It wasn't like about the social life. The, the, in most schools, the drama club has all their drama offstage. We put it all on stage. We were very serious and very sober about it. He also would recruit from all over the school. When we did Barnum, I played Tom Thumb. Again, I was short. And he cast the tallest guys he could get who were all athletes from the basketball and, and football team. You know, he, he was all about making the show as good as possible. It wasn't about us being some, you know, special little club. You know, it, it was about the work. That's wonderful because you fell in love with theater for like all the right reasons. You fell in love with theater because of the possibilities of theater rather than the 
reward definitely that definitely. can give you uh that's that's beautiful and that that is life that goes on forever that that and that that that's 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 a wonderful thing the the potential of theater yeah i think people forget how important that is and that's one of the things i love about um the the way we improvise is that we sometimes tap into not just funny and and nutty stuff but uh, the the theater that you know we we all sort of that resonated with us and continues to resonate with us and I remember when we when I came back into the group and you were you were very amped about the idea of trying to bring that stuff into improv mm-hmm. which uh, which which is really really fun and hard to do. As far as your improv ideology, do you have any sort of fixed way of doing it? Do you have any, you know, this is the way to do it, or do you? I don't uh, have a particular way your... to do. It. I mean, I certainly have my habits and skills that I lean on, but it's more you know. The, I always ask the why. Why do we do it? You know, as a teacher. The one thing right. I want to do is have people connect to why are you doing it? It's an art form mm-hmm. and art is about self-expression and discovery. You know, we have to, we're trying to figure out, you know, solutions to life problems, trying to understand the human condition, you know, high minded things in a very often low minded art form. And I don't see those two right. things as incompatible, you know, and I'm not trying to change improv. I love the absurdity of it because life is absurd. And so when we're crazy and silly, we're just sort of reflecting in a funhouse mirror way the way life is. You know, life is absurd. Our planet is absurd right now, you know? Oh, yeah. And it's also, you know, it's this this um, expression I heard you know, where our job, this is the job of journalists is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I've always thought that's incredibly valid for us as performers you know, we're, we're there to say to people, it's okay, and let's laugh at some people, and also take pot shots at those in power. And I think right. that, like, my philosophy of improv is, like, that's what we have to do. You know, it's sort of like being the court jester, if you will. Only the jester can make mm-hmm. fun of the king, and, that, 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 and that's our job. But really, it's we're in the room with these people right now. Let's have a shared experience that leaves us all a little bit changed, you know, feeling a little bit more joyful, feeling a little more silly, maybe a little more mm. inspired. Mm. You know, I love hearing yeah. from people that our show was important to them on some special night of their life. You know, uh, uh, mostly it's people who are like, I saw your show and realized that's what I wanted to do with my life. That's crazy to me, but I've heard it dozens of mm. times, mm-hmm. which is powerful. Mm-hmm. Because there's an urgency to what to what you bring to it that I think so many people forget like the theater is a sacred place no matter what you're doing whether it's a play or an improv show and it should be no matter how you know dismissive or self-depreciating you get kevin and i know you can get that way um it often is a mask because every time before a show you're super focused and every time you're out there, you are ready to change the world if you can. And I if love I can. that about you, yeah. Kev. 
Yeah, I um I mean it's it's why I do it. I love doing it. I love doing it. I love you know, the last five or six years I've been doing a lot of shows internationally at these festivals that have up to like a thousand people in the audience. Many of them don't, you know, there are not native English speakers. Um right. and I'm often playing with people I've never played before. Sometimes it's a Dave Rosalski or a Joe Bill. Uh, or Jill Bernard, someone that like I revere and respect, and I'm probably terrified to play with. Um, right. But it's like that. It's that feeling of like I have an opportunity to connect with people that I've never met before. I'm going to meet them. I'm on stage and they're in the audience. But for me, that's a way to like, you know, um, show myself to the world. I don't know if I'm making any sense. I don't want to, I'm trying not to sound egotistical, you know, cause you I, don't. but don't there, but there certainly is some ego involved in it. There, there's maybe 10% of the look at, look at me in it, but really it's like the fact that people love improv enough to go to a festival, to go see some improvisers. I'm so excited and so thankful that they're there. Same thing with our show, which has been going on now 20 years that like, mm. The last show we did before the lockdown was sold out. We had to add a row of seats. And that is so meaningful to me that like people take the time out. They 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 make it right. part of their week to come see us F around. And I'm so right. it's like so exciting that like this matters. I matter. What we do matters. Let's go out there and, and do it. And if we change the world, great. And if we don't, that's great too. We're just not going to make the world any worse. Thanks, Kevin Scott. That's it. Thank you. Oh, my God. I could talk about That's me it. all night long. I know. I know we could do 18 parts. It would be like the um, Carl Ove Neusgaard books. Mm. My struggle. But unfortunately, we want to keep these tight and shiny. Mm. Uh, and I thought, uh, you know, I love you, Kev, and I'll, 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 love you I'll, too, I'll hear Pat. all about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, next time we talk. There you have it, everybody. That was the one-on-one -on -one between myself and Mr. Patrick McCartney. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider subscribing. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell the ghosts that live in your attic. The more listeners we have, the more people are listening. If you want to support this podcast directly, you can do so on our page on anchor.fm. Just look for the Centralia Improvisational Podcast page and find the support button. Send us emails, questions, answers, comments to our email, centraliaimprov at gmail.com. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just stalk outside our apartments and wait for us to just yell things out on the street. And thank you for listening to the Centralia Improvisational Podcast.